pray. Lord, you are King of kings and Lord of lords. Tonight as we spend considerable time looking at those powers that array themselves against you and against us, against your people, may we remember to focus our eyes on you, the mighty King, the judge, the creator of heaven and earth, the recreator, new heavens and the new earth. Lord, we confess that there are, in the book of Revelation, things hard to understand. We pray that you would give us your insight, that we might uh, better receive this revelation of Christ and see how it bears upon our lives today. We ask in Christ's name, amen. Enver Hoxha was the communist dictator of Albania for some decades following World War II until 1985. His motto was... Albania is all the religion an Albanian needs. With that as his credo, he did his best to completely eradicate the Christian church from the land of Albania. Some people who watch what happens in the world of religion believe that there was not one functional church in the entire nation of Albania when he died in 1985. Some people think there might not have been a single Christian. He let them leave. He didn't kill every last one drove them out. Mao Zedong, during his years as communist dictator of China, put hundreds and thousands of images, statues, murals of himself all over the major cities and the small towns. You saw them, perhaps. Dozens of feet high that people might look upon his benevolent gaze. Gaze back. Joe Stalin, who, Joseph Stalin, who killed some estimates would say 20 million of his own people starved them to death in order to get them under his control, wanted to be loved by his people as Papa Joe. It's very touching, his, his kindness toward his people. Alexander the Great was received with worship in city after city as he swept through the ancient world. In many of his conquests, no one resisted at all. They simply came out to greet him and bow down to him and pay homage to him as not only an emperor, but as a god. What do they have in common? They're all manifestations of the sea beast. Revelation chapter 13, verse 1. Revelation 12 and 13. In our last time together, we saw that in Revelation 12, 13, and 14, we move from the scene somewhat more focused on life as it is on earth in chapters 1 to 11 and move back behind to chapters 12 and 13 all the way through 22 which describe the spiritual realities behind the travail and the conquests on the face of the earth. In chapter 12 we saw that the dragon uh, desires to destroy the child, the Christ child, to destroy the church he wages war against heaven. And wherever he goes, he's defeated. In fact, we saw that by the time you count them all up, he is defeated a total of five times. Nonetheless, he is persistent. And so after we read in chapter 12 that the dragon was enraged because when he belched out, verses 16 and 17, a river of water to devour, to sweep away um, the woman... And the earth helped the woman and swallowed that water up. And that was over. He went off to wage war against the rest of her offspring, those who obey God's commandments and hold to the testimony of Jesus. So thus ended 12, 16, and 17, just about the last thing we did in our last class. Then we read this. And the dragon stood on the shore of the sea, and I saw a beast coming out of the sea. I have a picture of a beast up there on the picture, and if you, on, on the wall. And if you are able to detect it from comparison to the red beast that I showed you last time. This blue beast looks a lot like the red beast. And the reason why it's pictured that way is because in the book of Revelation, the description of the two beasts is extremely similar. Just a couple minor variations between the two. So that we would say, we could say, that the sea beast is the image of Satan. In fact, he is the first in the member of an unholy trinity. I'm not sure if you will have this 
uh, if this will be visible to you or not. Do you have an unholy trinity in your notes? Do you have that? Do you have something that looks like this in your notes? Did I give you something that looked like that? I'll give it to you next week, okay? So you can relax and not worry about having to take notes, all right? So just take a look at it. Uh, The theory behind chapter 13 of Revelation, and the whole of chapter 13, is that Satan is a counterfeiter. It is uh, one of his techniques to make nothing, create nothing, do nothing positive, but to pervert that which is good. In fact, if I can get away from this just for a minute, if you think about what Satan does, the way he works in the world, his work enticing people to sin has no positive thesis because sin never does. Sin only perverts what's good. So theft is a misuse of property, right? And lying is a misuse of the gift of language, as is slander, deceit, and malice, and so forth. And sexual immorality is a misuse of the gift of sexuality. And divorce is a misuse of marriage. And greed is a misuse of our good desires and the aspirations we have. And pride is a misuse of skill and giving too much credit to ourselves. Every sin you can think of is somehow a perversion of something that's good. Now, that's true of of the work he tries to do in us. It's also true of the work he does, we might say, within his own demonic realm. So that Satan would like to consider himself to be a counterpart to God the Father. The Father plans and creates, and and Satan deceives and welcomes the beast. The Father is related to the Son... And I think we could put it this way. Jesus is God incarnate, active in redemption, active in the lives of his people, and receiving worship from his people. And the sea beast who comes forth from Satan, who is not, would like to be a counterpart of God, is Satan incarnate. His image is like the image of the beast, even as Christ's image is the very image of the Father. He's active not in redemption, but in destruction, and he too desires Worship, Just as God sends the Son, and the Son receives testimony by the Holy Spirit, so Satan has one who will give testimony to the first beast that he sends. It's a beast coming from the earth, and sometimes called the false prophet. Just as the Holy Spirit witnesses to Christ, a beast that comes from the earth, whom I therefore call an earth beast, is a false witness who gives testimony, tries to get everyone on earth to worship the beast, as we'll see in a moment. Now, the triune God has a relationship, a love relationship, a holy love relationship with the bride, his church. And Satan has a perverse kind of a love relationship with a harlot, not a bride, but a prostitute who is called Babylon. The bride is pure. The harlot is impure and tries to seduce through wealth and pleasure. This sea beast does indeed correspond in certain twisted ways to Christ as you look through the pages of the scriptures. I already mentioned that he receives worship even as Christ has already received worship in Revelation chapter 6 and will receive it later on. Both of them have a mark or a seal that they offer their people. We'll talk about the mark of the beast in just a few moments. But Jesus put a mark on his people. Remember that from chapter 7 and chapter 9 to protect them. And the beast has his Mark. In both, there's a father-son, a proceeding relationship. Both, Jesus had a mortal wound, truly, and was killed and raised to life. And the beast has something that looked like, Revelation says, chapter 13, a mortal wound. But he was raised to life. And they both have an interest in a name. The beast seeks a name. So there's an unholy trinity. The goal of this unholy trinity is to is to mock and to pervert the work of God and the work of Christ. Let's take a look at the sea beast just a little bit, chapter 13, verses 1 to 10. The dragon, again, end of chapter 12, beginning of 13, is standing by the sea, and then a a beast comes with ten horns, seven heads, ten crowns 
on his horns. And each had a blasphemous name. Even as Jesus says, an excellent name, this is a blasphemous name. There's a description of this beast, which I won't go into in detail. The main idea, if you look at the beast and simply think about the imagery, is that this beast represents false, oppressive government power. Mao Zedong, Stalin, Hoxha, Alexander the Great, and the Roman emperors. If you think through the symbolism, do you know these symbols in the Bible? What does a head represent? He's got heads, seven heads. Do you know what the head means in the Bible? Does anybody know? Authority or rule, absolutely. Head means authority or rule. What does a crown signify? Do you know? Somebody try it. I hear whispers. Okay, that's right. It symbolizes power, governmental power. And horns, especially, are a sign of power in the Bible. So all three of these symbols are symbols of power, uh, rule, authority, and they add up to government. The goal then, according to this passage, is to attack the church indirectly through government and, we'll see in a moment, through false religion. What the beast does is represent government as it oversteps its bounds, as it receives worship. It receives worship for 42 months. We'll talk about the 42 months in a little bit. This is the pattern of false government throughout the world. Verse 4, men worship the dragon because he given authority to the beast, and they also worship the beast and ask, who is like the beast and who can wage war against him? Do you remember the credo or the title that Domitian liked? What do you like to be called? Our Lord and our God. Right? And the Roman emperors like to receive the honor of worship uh, for, for their fame, for obedience to them, by the offering of a pinch of incense and a prayer not only for the emperor, but a prayer to the emperor. The spirit, then, of the beast is... False government claiming worship for itself. I already gave you my evidences in communism, which maybe did it the most. Mao Zedong, Joe Stalin, Hoxha, many others could be mentioned. But can you see, could you agree with me, that in fact, not only in communism, but in fact it is the common tendency of government to want more power than what it deserves in its sphere. And it's, in fact, also the common tendency of people to give it to the government. Not only the communist countries, but also socialist countries have done the same thing. We could think of a place like Sweden, which has promised its citizens to care for them from the cradle to the grave. We will take care of you. That's the motto of some of the socialist governments. Now, I've talked about, uh, about uh, um, Alexander the Great. Roman emperors, about communists, about socialists. Can we mention the United States or not? Who here is patriotic? Who here is leery of patriotism? There's a difference. It's one thing to be glad to be an American. And we should be glad to be Americans. It's a wonderful land that we've had the privilege of being born in. And we should be patriotic. And we should be loyal to our country and not attack it and not slander our leaders. We should pray for our leaders and so on. But there is a danger in patriotism when people start saying things like, my country right or wrong. That's patriotism. I'm an American first. Our country is a great country, but it's also a sinful country. It's also a country that claims too much for itself and would claim loyalty at sometimes at almost any cost. It's not just the past. It's not just communists. Every government or almost every government has a tendency, or at least some within the government, I'll say that for sure, some within the government have a tendency to claim too much, to claim the right of worship, to claim the right of exclusive loyalty. The beast, it goes on to say, uh, gives this sense of invincibility. The whole world is astonished and follows the beast. He looks like a powerful animal. And it says a little bit later, that he seemed to have a fatal wound. And that is also another mark of many, many governments. Now, the Bolshevik Revolution, to talk about communism again, was almost crushed repeatedly during the 19-teens. 
and the communists in China could talk about the long march and how they had to march thousands of miles to avoid eradication going through the mountains in a march that lasted for many months. They seemed to be dead, but they came to life again. Napoleon, who had certain uh, aspirations to greatness, uh, also seemed to be defeated on more than one occasion, on the verge of death. And that, that near death is a kind of a mockery or an imitation of the true death and the true resurrection of Christ. What does the sea beast do? Verses 10 to 12. The sea beast tries to intimidate by force. If anyone, we read, is to go into captivity, into captivity he will go. If anyone is to be killed with a sword, with a sword he will be killed. Then in verse 12, um, well, no, that, that'll be good enough for right now. Uh, he tries to coerce, he tries to use the sword to threaten with death. That is the mentality or the approach of the sea beast. The sea beast also likes to ask a question. Chapter 13, verse 4. Men worship the dragon because he gave authority to the beast. They worshiped the beast and they said, Who is like the beast? Do you know your Bibles? Where does the question, Who is like, come up in the Bible? Sandra? Who is like the Lord? Who is like our God? Is a refrain that's found any number of times throughout the Old Testament, right? I'll give you a couple. I'll give you a few more maybe a little bit later on. Um, Exodus 15, verse 11 says, Who among the gods is like you, O Lord? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glory, working wonders? O Lord, who is like you? Psalm 89, verse 8. Who is like the Lord? Isaiah asks on a couple of occasions. But the beast says, No, I want to have that same question. Who is like the beast? There's no one like me. How does the church respond to the beast? Not by fighting, not by meeting the sword with the sword, but by enduring. 13.10 If anyone is to go into captivity, into captivity he will go. If anyone is to be killed with a sword, with a sword he will be killed. In other words, God will allow this. The way in which we fight the beast, Jesus has taught us, is not by the beast's methods. Remember when Jesus was about to be slain and Peter whipped out a sword? But Peter, you don't have it right. If I wanted to fight, I don't need your sword. I could have 12 legions of angels, 72,000 angels at my disposal to fight this little ragtag bunch that came out to arrest me. Now is the time to submit, to resist. To resist not actively, but resisting by not giving them the worship that they would like. We might say, by naming the fear of death, he weakens the fear of death. When we don't mention something, it has more of a hold. Just bring it right out. Satan wants to kill. At least that's one of the things he wants to do. We'll see another in just a little bit. Well, killing doesn't really work. It doesn't actually work all that well. Uh, often when active persecution takes place, slaying and captivity and so forth, things don't go well because people, people's attention is drawn to the church and their courage is admired and, and decent pagans feel bad about killing the church members and so on. And so another technique is used. Verse 11. Then I saw another beast coming out of the earth. He had two horns like a lamb, but he spoke like a dragon. He exercised all the authority of the first beast on his behalf and made the earth and its inhabitants worship the beast whose fatal wound had been healed. I'm going to read down to the end of this passage. After he performed, and he performed great and miraculous signs, even causing fire to come down out of heaven to earth in full view of men because of the signs he was given power to do on behalf of the first beast, deceived the inhabitants of the earth. He ordered them to set up an image in honor of the beast who was wounded by the sword and yet lived. He was given power to give breath to the image of the first beast so they could speak and cause all who refused to worship the image to be killed. He forced everyone, small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on his right hand or on his forehead so that no one could buy or sell unless he had the mark, which is the name of the beast or the number of his name. 
This calls for wisdom, I'll say. If anyone has insight, let him calculate the number of the beast, for it is man's number. The number is six, six, six. Okay. If the sea beast is political power, what is the earth beast? The earth beast is a religious power. Did you see the references to worship and to images and to miraculous signs in the passage I just read? He resembles a lamb, but he speaks as a dragon. Does it remind you of anything? Is there any warning about people who come sounding like lambs? False teachers come, and this is the way it is with Revelation. The symbols are just switched a little bit so often, aren't they? Beware of those who come in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravening wolves, Jesus says in Matthew 7:16. Beware of, of a beast that speaks like, or looks like, a lamb, but is actually a dragon. He is, 13.12 says, before or in front of or in the presence of the first beast. Do you know that the presence to be in front of or before in biblical language is the posture of a worshiper? A prophet is one who is in the presence of God. Or people, are when they worship, are in the presence of the living God. So we could say, this beast is in the presence of. He's a servant of the first beast. He performs signs. Fire coming from heaven. Who does that remind you of? Sounds like Elijah, who called fire down from heaven to destroy. Okay, he became he came down to destroy the prophets of Baal, or actually to wipe out, the, you know, to burn up that sacrifice. And then in second, that's like First Kings seventeen. And then in Second Kings one and two, remember when he's going to be arrested by uh, wicked kings of the north. How fire comes down from heaven and devours one group of 50 and another group, and then he's ready to devour another group. He's going to imitate that. He's going to imitate the power that God has shown to take care of his prophet Elijah. He's going to so-called take care of his own. He deceives and leads to false worship, even as a false prophet will. Deuteronomy 18, false prophets lead you astray to worship other gods. He is a false prophet. He's the representative and the agent of the beast. He establishes false worship. Okay, we had a fulfillment of the sea beast in the communists and in Sweden and in Alexander the Great and the Roman emperors. Where might we see a fulfillment of the earth beast, the false prophet? Have there been throughout history false religious powers to try to lead the people into false worship and tie it in with false government. That's the axis, you see. False government and false worship together. False government and false religion together. Where is it in history, Darlene? Darlene has spared me the responsibility, although she whispered it, of saying the most dangerous of all things. She has said that it's the Pope that we're talking about here. Is it true? Is the Pope... Especially the popes before the Reformation, were those popes earth beasts? I think they were. I think they were because those popes served the kings of the Holy Roman Empire, served the kings and the, and the military leaders of Italy and of Spain, and backed it up with the power of the pope, including threats of excommunication. Certainly it was a false religion because of their profound corruption, and because of their denials of salvation by faith through grace. So, thank you, Darlene, for doing the dirty work for me. It's the popes of the Middle Ages. Is that all? When else does false religion support false governmental powers, all in support of Satan? Islam. Tell me what you mean by that. Absolutely, in Islam we have the imams, and the mullahs and so forth, who work hand in hand, or else we could even, maybe sometimes they try to force the governmental power and merge the two as one so that religion supports the state and the state supports religion. Is that all? Was there something right at hand for them in the first century? Surely, the system of the, of the Roman emperors was one in which the priests, way back to our first class, the priests would often support four or five or six religions, be initiated into several religions with big shows and so forth, and there would be meals and festivals and sort of public events, 
all using religion and prayer to support the power of the emperor. Absolutely. But let's not just go after people long ago. And let's, let's just go after the popes. How about let's go after Protestants too, shall we? How about the state churches in Western Europe and in Eastern Europe who take their money from the state, go to state-approved schools, and support a theology that's almost completely dead, a safe, comforting religion? Uh, America? Is there any of this in our country today? Yes. Communism. Mormonism. Okay. Tell me why you say Mormonism. That's right. Mormonism with, with uh, Joseph Smith and Brigham Young establishing a state and a, and a structure of learning. Absolutely. In fact, there is a tendency toward this in all kinds of false religions. Even to the point that you could say it's, it's almost the exception. When, when kings don't try to get priests or the church or religious institutions to support them and prop them up and be in their control and you know, pay them and consult with them and have them in the court of the king and so forth. It's the exception in Israel to have independent prophets speaking against kings in the ancient world. We could even talk, we could even talk about Protestant churches today, the ones that uncritically support the American way. Right? Couldn't it be? Well, I'll let you think about that. It is easy for religion to go into the, to go into the hands of false government. Now, what happens here, and I know you've all been waiting to get to this, is that, it, is that he also tries to get a mark going. And a mark on the name, uh, sorry, a mark on the right hand and on the forehead, there's also a number. I'm going to do the mark second, do the number first. The number is 666, which is a human number. Now, I wish I had something really profound to tell you. I've looked at this. I've thought about it. I've read all kinds of things. But the best that I can tell is that seven is the number of God in his perfection. And six is the number of man in his imperfection. Always aspiring to perfection and always coming up short. As in the saying, a day late and a dollar short. The number of mankind is, in their godlessness, the number of mankind is an indicator of mankind's desire to be like God. All the way back to Adam and Eve. And their consistent failure to make it. Now, I wish I had something more profound and jazzy for you, but I do have something more profound and jazzy for the mark of the beast. So let's talk about the mark of the beast. First of all, just a little bit of Greek. In chapter 7, verse 3, and in chapter 9, verse 6, two passages we talked about earlier, um, especially we talked about chapter 9, where believers are sealed so that the, the locusts who come from the abyss can't hurt them. Remember that from a couple weeks ago? The seal of a believer is one thing. The word is, well, it has its own word. The word is sragizo, if you care. The beast has not a seal and not a sign. That's another thing sometimes God uses but a mark, a karagma. He doesn't get the same word as if to suggest he doesn't have the same thing. Now, the servants of God protect God, and they're, they're marked, Exodus chapter 12, Ezekiel chapter 9, Revelation chapter 9, all passages we talked about earlier, they're marked with a seal on their forehead to protect them. And the beast also marks his servants to protect them. They're marked on their hand, and on their forehead. But whereas God's servants are marked in a way that keeps them safe for him for all eternity, the beast marks his out with something that makes it possible for them to buy and to sell. They don't offer, and they can't offer, eternal life. Notice what it says. I read it to you a moment ago. They're marked on their hand and on the forehead, end of 16, verse 17 then, so that no one could buy or sell unless he had the mark of the beast which is the name of the beast and the number of his name. Now, some people have wondered, are we going to have a literal, physical mark of the beast or not? And I think the short answer is, there's no way of telling. I do know that the mark of God, I brought something to read you here somewhere. 
I do know that the mark of God is invisible. The seal of the Holy Spirit is invisible. The mark of God is, is invisible. But I also know that in the time, more or less the time of the writing of this book, a little bit, you know, a little bit like about 100 years, but a very popular book. Have you heard of 1st, 2nd, 3rd, and 4th Maccabees? How many of you have heard of those books? Okay, most of you heard. Have any of you read any of those books, Maccabees? Okay, a couple, handful, five or six have read some of Maccabees. Maccabees tells a story of the uh, life of the Israelites in the period between the close of Malachi, around 400 A.D., and the coming of John the Baptist and the coming of Christ. The focus is on uh, the mid-2nd century B.C., around the year 160 uh, to about 130 B.C., or 170 on in B.C., there's a crucial person during this time. His name is Antiochus. They got a, a whole, actually, there's a series of Antiochus family clan members. They named cities after themselves, like Antioch, the city in Antioch. And they weren't happy to have one. They wanted to have a bunch of Antiochs. They gave themselves sometimes the title Epiphanes. Do you know what an Epiphany is? It's an appearance or a manifestation of God. So when they called themselves Antiochus Epiphanes 1, 2, 3, 4, they were saying, as you look upon me, Antioch, Antiochus, you are, you are having an epiphany. You're seeing what God is like. So we could say these people did not have a, a problem with poor self-esteem or with you know, weak ego strength. And one of the things that Antiochus Epiphanes did was, in, was insist that the Jews worship his gods. And there's a little passage in 3 Maccabees chapter 2 that describes it. So I'm going to read it to you and maybe comment on it just a little bit. Um, I'll read about five or six verses from this. Third Maccabees, I'll begin with verse 25 of chapter 2. When he arrived in Egypt, he increased in his deeds of malice, abetted by the previously mentioned drinking companions and comrades who were strangers to everything just. Acts of malice included things like uh, forbidding circumcision in Israel, forbidding um, the inculcation of Christ of Jewish virtues, forbidding of the reading of the law, and so forth, and punishment if you did. He was not content with his uncounted licentious deeds, but even continued with audacity that he framed evil reports to the various localities, and many of his friends intently observing the king's purposes themselves also followed his will. He proposed to inflict public disgrace upon the Jewish community, and he set up a stone on the tower in the courtyard with this inscription, None of those who do not sacrifice shall enter their sanctuaries, and all Jews shall be subject to a registration involving poll tax and to the status of slaves. Now, that's two things. One, all Jews are slaves. That's the second one. Just period. Every last one of you. The first one is, you can still worship Yahweh if you worship this stone that I, that I put in the courtyard. In other words, you can worship your God if you worship my God too. And if you don't, then uh, you'll be subject to various penalties. Here goes. Those who object to this are to be taken by force and put to death. So if you, if you protest, you die, said Antiochus. Those who are registered are also to be branded on their bodies by fire with the ivy leaf symbol of Dionysius and thus shall be reduced to their former limited status. One more inscription. But if any of them prefer to join those who have been initiated into the mysteries, they will have equal citizenship with the Alexandrians. Now what he did was propose three things uh, with regard to worship. Worship my gods and you can worship yours too. If you resist actively, you'll be killed. If you resist passively, that's the registering thing. If you resist passively, you will be branded, you will be marked with the ivy leaf of Dionysius, which was one of his gods. So if you say, I, can't, I won't do it, but I won't fight it either, then you are marked on your forehead for the rest of your life visibly with an image of Dionysius or Bacchus. And then, of course, if you want to go along with it and worship, then you will be back to the status of citizens like that of the Alexandrians, in other words, a full citizen. That was an actual, literal thing, which I think is a very good chance, uh, since it had such a huge impact on the Jews at the time, may be sort of the background for the mark of the beast, or at least a part of the background of the mark of the beast. But it's not just that. 
Revelation says, we're not just talking about Antiochus and something like that and false worship. It's actually a little bit more subtle than that. The subtle thing is that what you'll get is the right to buy and to sell. And here's the trade-off. You get the seal of God and the seal of the Spirit, and that will guarantee your salvation and an eternal inheritance. Or, on the other hand, you can have the mark of the beast, and he'll promise you something. He'll promise you the ability to buy and sell temporal prosperity. Do you get eternal or temporal prosperity? That's the, that's the choice. But then, of course, eternal ruin. Those with the mark of the beast are sealed with his name and with his fate. Those with the mark of God are sealed with his name and with his fate. Eternal bliss, temporary suffering, or temporary bliss, eternal suffering, take your pick. The seal of God, the mark of the abyss. We can even ask the question, why this interest on a mark or on a seal? The sealed multitude, chapter 7, verse 3, chapter 14, verse 1. Would you turn to 14.1 of Revelation? 14.1. Then I looked, and there before me was the Lamb standing on the Mount Zion, and with him 144,000 who had his name, and his Father's name written on their foreheads. So now we're getting another equivalence. The, the seal of God is the name of God, and it's written on our foreheads. Now, what does it mean to have someone's name put on you, or a name put in a certain place? What does it mean when you've got a name put on you? It signifies ownership, absolutely. So we could think of, this is a very well-known symbol throughout the Old Testament, God puts his name on his place of worship. Deuteronomy, if you like, Deuteronomy 14, 23, Deuteronomy 11, 25, Exodus 20, 24. God's name is put on his place. Jerusalem is the city of God, and it too bears his name. It's the, the name is the city of God. And the Israelites bear God's name and belong to him. Deuteronomy 28, verses 9 and 10 say, They're his sons and daughters. They're his objects. They have his name. Not just the Old Testament, though. In baptism, we are baptized into the name of a Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost. And the way we do it in our churches is, is the symbolism is exactly right. The name of God, you know, the, the minister puts the water and then names the name of the triune God as he touches the child. And then he says, this child belongs to God, right? Isn't that the way it goes? If you're baptizing children, and, and those of you are my Baptist brothers... And sisters who are, you know, wondering what's going on, why we're talking about baptizing babies, then I won't get into a debate with you. I'll just say, as you baptize believing adults, you baptize into the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. That's what we do. And it's, it's absolutely correct to do that. Um, those who are the Lord's, name His name. 2 Timothy 2.19 says, so, in the book of Revelation, those with the name of the Father on their forehead are those who are redeemed, those who are purchased by the blood of the Lamb. Chapter 5, verse 9 says, they're redeemed from the nations, they're purchased from, by Christ, and they belong to Him. You know, that stream of Scripture, we're bought by Christ, we belong to Him. And so, you know, my, my kids, I have girls, but they have baseball gloves too, and we, we put the, our name on the glove. So we don't lose it when you trade gloves, right? It's Doriani, right? You know, or the soccer ball has your name on it. Or maybe your baseball bat, if it's a good one. Um, you know, one of those good aluminum bats, anyway. You put your name on it somewhere so nobody else walks off with it, right? Because it belongs to you. So God names us and puts his name upon us because we belong to him. So if you bear a name, you belong. And if you belong, then you belong. And if you belong, then you get the privileges of being owned by God, also the troubles, persecution. And if you belong to the beast, you get the privileges. You fit in with the world real well. That's the privilege. No one bothers you. You buy and sell, you make deals, everything goes well. But on the other hand, you also belong to him in his eternal destiny. His fate is yours. And why is all this 
uh, going with buying and selling. What's, what's the logic here? The logic is this. Satan tries various approaches to tempt the Christians, to lead them astray. One approach, chapter 12, is to devour them, kill them. Kill the Christ child, kill us. Another approach, back to chapter 12 again, is to accuse. Another approach is to start warfare in heaven and to, and to win many angels to himself. None of those work in the long run. So then he tries another approach, and that's political power. It's coercion by the state. But that doesn't work either all the time. And so he tries economic temptation. And I suppose that in America, the greatest temptation for most of us is here. And maybe even throughout all history. One of the curious things that you find when you look through church history is that sometimes persecution, the frontal persecution, does really hurt the church. There are countries like Albania and, and various others I won't go through in the history of the church, or, or like France, in which true Christians are persecuted and persecuted and persecuted and killed and driven out. Now, not every Christian in Albania was killed. A lot of them left, and a lot of the Christians in France left. They went to the Netherlands and various other places in uh, the period when the Catholics were, were, were persecuting Protestants in the uh, post-Reformation era. But generally, it doesn't really work all that well. In fact, we've mentioned Mao Zedong a couple times. When Mao set himself the task of destroying the church in China, the most common estimate that you hear among missiologists is that there were around 300,000 Christians in China. And when Mao died, the estimate is there were a minimum of 20 million. And some people think there were 30 or 40 or 50 million after 40 years of solid persecution. That's how well it worked. The Muslims tried to kill Christians and eradicate them and use holy wars against Christians, and it didn't work in northern Africa. You know what did work? They just said every Christian has to pay double taxes. It worked. And they said no Christian can hold a high office in the government. You can't be in the military. And you can't have nice churches. You can have nice mosques. You can't have nice churches. You can't have processions. You can't do anything that just makes your life grand. That makes it splendid. That gives you a sense of worth. That gives you a little more money. And in communist countries, that also seems to have worked the best. One of the things that communists did, Russia, China, especially Russia, East Germany, was to say, we aren't going to kill you. We aren't going to throw you in jail if you're quiet. This is what we'll do. We will never let any of your children into the university, no matter how smart, no matter how talented, no matter how gifted. You're a Christian, you aren't going to get in the university. You're a Christian, you're not going to be a professional. You're not going to get a good job. You'll be janitors. You'll be uh, digging ditches. You'll be harvesting fields by hand. You'll all be menial laborers. And you know, that got some people. Not themselves, when you said your children, your grandchildren, your great-grandchildren will all be common laborers, then some began to buckle. That's a temptation. I don't know why it is, but this is the way in which Satan sometimes gets the greatest results. Two great systems opposed. How do we resist the beast? We resist the sea beast by trusting ourselves to God, by saying, I'm not going to fight with a sword. If I have to die, I'll die. And God will care for me in heaven. I may be meeting the Lord faster than I intended or hoped, but I'll go to meet the Lord. What can you do? What's the worst you can do? You can kill me. So I go to be with the Lord. But then there's another approach. No, we can do something else. We can make you suffer a little bit every year for 50 years. And there we need discernment to resist the blandishments of wealth, the worldly system of fitting in, of being just too comfortable in this world. And I, I hate to say it, but you know, there are Christians who play into the hands here with a prosperity gospel. Who say, you know, the Lord will give you abundance. You just, you know, you're on the Lord's side. He'll, he'll uh, you know, you give a thousand dollars to the Lord, he'll give you two thousand or five thousand back. And just send some money to me and I'll pray for you and you'll you'll have an abundance. And and of course it's true that God takes care of his people, that's true, and, and that there are riches in Christ. But the fact of the matter is that it's a temptation to worldliness. Say, we'll get the goods of this world and our religion too. That's exactly what Satan wants. To have a religion 
that makes you comfortable in this world. So again, resistance to Satan means discernment, looking through the deceit. It means loyalty. It means perseverance. It means knowing that the Lord owns you. It means if you hear the threat of violence and they hear the threat of deprivation, if it comes your way, you've been prepared. You've been warned. Chapter 14 gives a counterpoint to this activity of Satan and his, his allies by describing in 14.1 to 5 a great multitude, 144,000. These are marked out as, as all the redeemed, the 144,000 who had been redeemed on the earth, verse 3. Somebody asked me earlier if the 144,000 in Revelation 7 are just the Jewish Christians because it mentions the tribes. I said, no, I think it's all Christians, and here's my reason. Because here the 144,000 is all who have been redeemed. They're pure. They follow the Lamb wherever He goes. They worship. They worship with power like thunder, sweet like a harp. The response to the power of the world is not to fight the world, is not to wage war or to, to establish another society that will take care of you know, a, a, a society free from materialism that allows us to, to have our commerce our way. The response is to worship, to be holy. These people are pure. Uh, they're called virgins, not because virginity is something that's absolutely promised as the best quality, but because it symbolizes, from 1 Corinthians 7, devotion to the Lord and freedom from defilement. Then come, verses 6 to 13, three angels who bear messages. The first angel preaches an eternal gospel. The eternal gospel that he proclaims is this. Fear God and give Him glory because the hour of the judgment has come. Worship Him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and the springs of the water. The first angel says, worship God. Two possibilities here about what this angel is proclaiming to all who are on the earth. One possibility is this is the eternal gospel, namely, even before the fall and even after the recreation of all things, we'll still worship God. So that's the eternal gospel apart from the gospel of Christ. Another view, that was very plausible, actually five different views, I'll just tell you two that, that are intriguing to me. The one then is... The eternal gospel is all people should worship God. All angels who are not redeemed hear this gospel, worship God. The other one is, it's sort of the last call uh, to repentance. And it comes to those who live on the earth, those who dwell on the earth. Everybody on the earth, here's one more, we might say, one more time for all eternity, fear God because the hour of judgment has come. Take you earth dwellers. All you who have the mark of the beast, all of you who are allied with him, this is your last chance. The hour of judgment has come. Repent now while you have a time to do so. Give him glory is an idiom sometimes used, a number of times used in the Bible for tell the truth, tell the truth about your sins. The second angel comes proclaiming something. The second angel proclaims the doom of Babylon, verse 8. Fallen is Babylon the Great, which made all the nations drink the maddening wine of her adulteries. Babylon is the age-old enemy of God's people. Way back to the Tower of Babel. What did the, Tower, what did the people say at the Tower of Babel? Let, let us make a name for ourselves. Let's, let, let's build a building up to heaven. That's been the mark of Babel. Striving, one of the marks of Babel. Striving to reach heaven, to be independent. Think of the book of Habakkuk. Where it talks about, you know, Habakkuk says, um, what do you do about the sin in Israel? And the answer is, I'm going to bring judgment from Babylon. Habakkuk says, Babylon? They're worse than we are. They're a proud and impetuous people. They have an insatiable appetite. Their, their mouth is like a grave. They can never eat enough. There's no end to their desire. They have infinite desire, like God, in a perverse way, perverting God's infinity. Babylon says, Isaiah 47, verses 8 to 10, I am, and there is none beside me. That's the motto of Babylon, which is the motto of God. And Isaiah says, Now listen, you Babylon, who says, I am, and there is none besides me. You say, 
I will never be a widow or suffer the loss of children. You have to think about this. Babylon says that. I am, there's none besides me. I'll never be a widow. I'll never suffer loss of children. Babylon depicted as a woman. What are the sources of a woman's security in antiquity? Her children and her husband. And Babylon says, I will never be a widow. I'll always have a husband to take care of me. And I will never lose a child. I'll always have children to take care of me. Babylon says, I am and there is no other, and I am secure. That's the motto of Babylon. Isaiah chapter 47, verses 8 to 10. But God says, these will both overtake you in one moment, in a single day, loss of children and widowhood. You've trusted in your wickedness. You have said, no one sees me. I am, and there's none besides me. Therefore, you will fall. You'll be humbled. And here's the word of the fall of Babylon in her pride and in her adulteries. We'll talk about those in just a moment. The third angel brings the word of judgment. The messenger of judgment uh, is coming in verses 10 and 11 and 12. Uh, Upon those, verse 9, who worship the beast and receive his mark on the forehead and on the hand, you will drink the wine of God's fury, which has been mixed full strength. It says sometimes double strength in some translations, meaning... A full measure, absolutely every bit of the wrath that you deserve, you will get. Because the day of judgment has come. And chapter 14, verses 14 to 20, describes a scene from which we might even get, I don't know about this actually, the term or the phrase bloodbath, because the judgment then does indeed come and a sickle is swept over the earth and the blood of those who who are judged on this day Um, is trampled and it flows out of the press, verse 20, rising as high as the horse's bridles for a distance of 1,600 stadia, which is about about 180 miles. The wrath of God. That takes us one more time to the judgment day. Because we've seen Satan, because we've seen the beast, the earth beast, the sea beast, and and their unwillingness to repent, we go all the way, again, as we've already done in chapter 6, in chapter 11, in chapter 14, we again go to the judgment day. 